Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Macy Donaway from EPAM Continuum. Let's play word association. When I say data, what's the next word that uploads into your mind? Chances are it isn't feminism, unless you happen to be our most recent guest, Catherine Dignazio. In her new book, Data Feminism, co-authored with Lauren F. Klein, Dignazio outlines a bold new way of understanding data science and data ethics informed by the ideas of intersectional feminism. Think for a moment about the data that you see around you each and every day. Do you question the source and how the data may have been pulled? What helps you to understand it or make some data more memorable than others? Do you wonder about who and what gets counted and why? about who controls the way data research is conducted and presented. Dignazio certainly does, in provocative and intelligent ways. Dignazio, who is the director of the Data and Feminism Lab and an assistant professor at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning, is no stranger to technology, design, and social justice, having run the Make the Breast Pump Not Suck hackathon designed global news recommendation systems, created talking and tweeting water quality sculptures, and led walking data visualizations to envision the future of sea level rise. She's joined for today's conversation by EPAM Continuum's Jen Ashman, Director of Innovation Consulting, who has led numerous projects across similar intersections, including the design of the Medela Sonata Smart Breast Pump Experience. They discuss Dignazio's new book, which was published by MIT Press in March 2020, and discuss alternate ways to experience data, including a method as delicious as a robot-made pie. Now, don't go and turn this off to find said pie, but instead, stay here and prepare for a discussion that is sure to transform how you perceive data in the future. Enjoy. Well, Catherine, I have a ton of questions, so um, bear with me and you know, we'll, we'll go from there. But one of the sure. first things I really would love to ask you is in your book, you define data feminism as a way of thinking about data, both their uses and their limits, that it's informed by direct experience, by commitment to action, and by intersectional feminist thought. And I would love mm. to hear about how data feminism plays out in the classes you teach at MIT, like how it's received, say, by your students, even your colleagues. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Yeah. It's yes. It's all pretty new because the, the book literally just came out on uh, March 10th. Um, but I have been using it in classes um, and I've given a couple of talks around MIT. Like and I and I just uh, um, spoke even just yesterday to a colleague's class who she teaches actually in history, but she's teaching a class called Feminist Thought. So I spoke to her undergraduate students. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting and I am enjoying is that, in fact, it seems to really resonate the most with the younger students, like with undergraduate students. It's so far kind of a pattern that I'm seeing, um, which warms my heart, actually, because I feel, I, I mean, as like a person, I feel like a little bit distant from that undergraduate phase of my life. So it's like... Um, 
just makes me excited that it's resonating with them. So I have a, I have one undergraduate student in the graduate class I'm teaching right now. And um, she got really excited about one of the chapters that we just read for our class mm-hmm. and asked if she could share it with this other group and lab that she's a part of. Um, and then I separately heard from another undergraduate student who got it in that realm and wrote to me and was like, oh, this is so exciting. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm excited about that. So the, I think the reception so far, you know, I mean, it's kind of early, but definitely mm-hmm. from students, I think it's, um, folks have been very receptive. And, and then I think also from teachers, we've had folks in a variety of different fields say that they, they're going to use it in their classes um, because they feel like it's a good accessible introduction to some of the critical issues around data, which there's been a lot of work around, you know, critical data studies and algorithmic bias and um, all of these things. But sometimes it can be hard to introduce those things in a way that's not super field specific or super um, academic or uh, Mm. yeah and so one of the things we wanted to try to do with data feminism which hopefully this is kind of early signs that it worked is um, is you know really try to be very accessible to folks who are either newcomers to data sort of Mm -hmm. data science or they're newcomers to feminism and um, can be introduced to some of the sort of central concepts that we we inherit from a feminist tradition. Yeah. Oh, that's, it sounds super intriguing. And I'm almost, I'm maybe curious about the way that, I guess you'd say like post COVID-19, since you're talking mm-hmm. about education and how you're teaching remotely, it's moved online, um, has this in particular opened up any new opportunities to teach and learn about data feminism? Might there be, you know, something about distance learning that lends itself to the topic? Well, one thing that never would have happened otherwise that we have done is we started a reading group. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's, it's been a funny confluence of events because the, yeah, our launch party was literally on March 10th. That was the week that things were starting to get shut down in Boston. I was really hoping, like, I was like, I think it's going to work out. We're going to have the party on is Tuesday, March 10th. And then they notified us, like, 24 hours before the event. And we're, they were like, we're, we're shutting down the bookstore. No public events. It's like, ah. Um, but Lauren and I really quickly pivoted. And I, or I think maybe just we're stubborn. And we were like, we are doing this anyway. So um, the same time we just said we're doing a launch party so we did like a virtual launch party on zoom Mm. and that was great and that kind of gave us a taste of like you know it was awesome because we had folks show up it was a very warm and supportive group of people a lot of people that we actually know from various different professional worlds showed up celebrated with us asked really good questions um but then there were also people who joined from like India and Argentina, like just folks who never would have showed up at the MIT Press bookstore in Central Square, Cambridge. And um, so we're like, oh, maybe we're onto something. So one of our sort of pivots for during COVID was, um, and this is, I got to give all credit to Lauren because at first I was skeptical. She was like, let's do a reading group where we'll read one chapter a week of mm-hmm. the book and then we'll just like talk about it in depth with each other. And so we've had two of these and so we do this on Fridays from 12 to 1 PM. We've done two of these so far and they've been amazing. And I was like, at first I was like, 
no, that's way too much work. I just like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then, um, but then she convinced me. And then after the first one, I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad we did this because we literally had uh, like 400 people show up. It's a very global audience. Like people were shouting out like, hello from, you know, Argentina. Hello mm-hmm. from um, Berlin. Hello from uh, all, India, all these different places. Um and it's a really sort of generous and warm uh, group of folks to read with. It has a very active chat that's like as if you're on Twitch or some kind of like gaming platform because the chat goes by really fast because there's so many people chatting. <laughs> um, and so it's been this like really amazing way to, I think, be in community with a group of people and share our work out with them. And they're really happy to receive it. And they're sharing their contact info with each other and they're sharing a bunch of other sort of readings and resources with each other. And so that that has felt really amazing. And I don't know if there would have ever been a physical equivalent that is like that, you know, because I think we had a bunch of book talks lined up, mostly at like academic places. And those would have been great. But um, there's something really different about this format, which is both formal and informal because it has both the, like, us talking and sort of giving these slide lectures, but then there's also the chat channel and people are making other asynchronous things like Twitter lists and stuff like that. <laughs> so, like, so, yeah, so I, that's, like, a really, yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot because it's been a really nice way to, to be in community with folks. Oh, that's a, that's super intriguing, especially in terms of the global community, just the, the stretch that you can now touch. Do you find um, interpretations of data feminism change with such a global audience? Yeah, and I think um, one of the things I've been most curious about, and I actually want to have a lot more conversations about this uh, with folks uh, who are not from the U.S. context, yeah, is how it resonates, because we're pretty clear in the book you know we the feminism that we're drawing on draws a lot from u.s based mm-hmm. black feminism so it's out of out of like it's really where intersectionality as a concept comes from and a lot of our examples are based in the u.s partially because that's what we know but also partially because we also want to be transparent about the limitations of our knowledge as well like we're not we don't want to claim to speak on behalf of you know, feminists in India or Pakistan or something like that, right? Um, so we're, we kind of want to be clear about kind of this is where where we're coming from and where it's grounded. But then one of the things I've been curious about, yeah, is how does it resonate with um, folks in South America or folks right. in India and Pakistan um, and these other different contexts? Um, and I haven't had enough of those conversations to really have a pulse on that yet, but, um, but it is interesting to me too that yeah that we're attracting this global audience um as part of the reading group so yeah yeah no that's fascinating and i'm also curious because you mentioned some really intriguing bubbled uh, intriguing questions bubbled up in the uh the launch can you give me a good example of what one of those was oh yeah let's see um well, I even just, gosh, yesterday, uh, the students in this class yesterday asked such amazing questions. Like, they're asking questions like, you know, in data feminism, we talk a lot about uh, this idea of missing data. Um, so this idea that uh, because data are expensive to collect, to store, to maintain, what this means is like our 
attention, as data sorry, data collecting institutions' attention is necessarily like you you collect data about certain things and you don't collect data about other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what tends to happen uh, again, just because of these structural inequalities like racism and sexism, um, is that. Uh, data about um, women and women's bodies um, often is not collected. And that's something like, you know, you and I have talked about that previously mm-hmm. in relationship to women's health. So things like, especially things that are stigmatized, um, those are things that we haven't invested in in terms of research data or, or other kinds of data, data to inform policy. Um, but this is sort of a pattern um, across a lot of different areas as relates to sort of women and uh, marginalized groups. So we talk a lot about this idea of missing data, like what data are we not collecting and like what knowledge are we not being able to draw upon. Um, but then we also say how data is a double-edged sword because of course not everybody wants to be visible. It's not good for everybody to be visible to the collecting institutions as well. Um, and so we had a question yesterday from an undergraduate student which was just brilliant, which was addressing this um, this exact sort of paradox where um, he said, um, well, like, you don't always want people to be visible to the state, mm. right? Like, he was saying, like, you, know, you seem to be making a case that we should always just collect more data, um, but you don't always want you know, marginalized groups to be visible to the state, depending on the circumstances. Um, and I think that is, in a way, this double-edged sword, because on the one hand, you want data to be able to um, make a case for change to, mm-hmm. to address structural oppression in some way um, and, and to inform policy and yet that same data can um, make the people who are uh, sort of represented by it vulnerable and like a really good sort of tangible example of this is the DACA program here in the US right now where it's like under Obama um, he's like okay all you undocumented young people you know, register with the U.S. government, and you're, we're going to protect you. You're, we're going to have a path to citizenship for you. Um, and then now the U.S. government has all the contact info for all the DACA folks. And then the Trump administration comes in, and it's, it's really up in the air right now what's going to happen and whether or not ICE is going to be basically using that same database of people to then um, go after folks and, and deport them to places that they've never, like, been to or known about before <laughs> so like right. um so i think it this kind of just illustrates that um that paradox at work yeah uh, it's, it's sort of mind-boggling um one of the fascinating things that struck me uh about the way that you talk about getting away from what donna haraway calls the god trick of seeing everything from nowhere in data or data visualization and creating different sort of post edward tufty approaches to data viz um, can you talk about a favorite example or two? Oh, sure. Yeah. I feel like there's so many. But yeah, many mm-hmm. of them are from the arts, I guess I would say. Because um, it's often the artists or sometimes data journalists, too, are doing like some of the most creative things with, um, with data. Um, but yeah, we talk about that. Um, so the, the book has uh, seven principles, and each principle is a chapter. And so that, the principle, and like where we talk about this the most, is the principle behind it is elevate emotion and embodiment. Um, and the basic argument of the chapter is like we have, especially in data communication, we have valued kind of reason, 
neutrality and objectivity uh, over uh, a kind of more emotional approach or an approach that values us as kind of embodied, living, breathing creatures with not only eyes, but we also have, you know, uh, noses that smell and uh, ears that hear and uh, sense of touch and all these things. Um, so those are all kind of like ways that we communicate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so why don't we use those? Um, and so basically it's sort of an argument for how can we revalue emotion and embodiment when we think about data communication and pointing out in the, the ways in which our, our overvaluing of reason is, is sort of the, comes from this kind of very masculine, it has this kind of whole gendered quality to it. But, um, but yeah, some of my favorite examples, um, well, okay, a very funny one is uh, <laughs> that we mentioned briefly in the book is the work of an artist. Okay, so her name is Anina Rust, is the mm-hmm. artist, and she has this piece called A Piece of the Pie Chart. Um, and it's an actual robot and it's a food robot that makes pies. And then on the top of the pies, uh, it makes a pie chart of the gender breakdown in different, uh, like tech companies and different fields. So it literally like draws a, makes a pie, draws a pie chart on the top of the pie. And then it's like a little conveyor belt and it carries it out to people. And then you eat the pie. <laughs> so like, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's like, but I really love it as a, um, an example of a data visualization. Like a, it's a very literal data visualization mm-hmm. that then you can then eat it <laughs> you like ingest the data. So I really, um, I really sort of appreciate that idea. Um, but then there's other artists like the artist Terry Reeb, um, where she sonifies data from the mm-hmm. landscape. So you, you walk around with, um, your phone that's, uh, sort of uh, noting where your uh, GPS coordinates are. Um, and then a different soundtrack is triggered that relates to the landscape and it di- relates to different layers of the landscape that like literally the, the earth, the layers of the earth that you're walking on at that very moment um, and triggers this soundscape. Um, so again, just like thinking about what are these sort of alternate ways that we can experience data um, that we can learn from. So even if we're designers and we're, we're not like uh, off going to make like a robot pie chart machine tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I feel like even those of us who are more on either the scientific visualization side or on the sort of straightforward um, sort of design side, I think can learn from these kind of modalities and from the ways in which they speak to the whole, the whole human body um, and the, uh, the emotional realm, the realm of like humor, uh, surprise, novelty, and so on. Um, and that's also what, we, I mean, we write about this a little bit in the chapter, but, you know, in contrast to Edward Tufte's sort of advice to be super minimalist about uh, your data visualization, like never decorate it, don't put any illustrations on it, you know, just all that we want is like just the facts, ma'am, kind of data visualization. Um, what folks in the scientific visualization community have been showing recently by experiment is that actually 
leveraging emotion really does activate us. Um, it makes the data more accessible. Mm-hmm. It helps people understand what the chart is trying to communicate. Uh, and it also makes uh, charts and um, graphics more memorable, right? Mm-hmm. And which totally makes sense. I mean, I think it's like, they're like showing by experiment what I think designers have known for a very long time, which is that you can leverage these different bits of like um, attention and emotion and uh, surprise and splashes of color, you know, like mm-hmm. all of those things really matter for like kind of grabbing someone's attention and um, holding them there and having them pay attention to something. Oh my goodness, you're speaking to my soul. Um, I've always found <laughs> as a designer that emotional intelligence within the human brain is that it's really hardwired for story. Um, and that yes. to your point, we are sensorial creatures. I think of, you know, pictographic languages from the Lascaux caves all the way to sort of emojis yeah. today. And yes. I'm really curious <laughs> if you find, and it sounds like you, you are through these different sort of sensorial ways, whether it's hearing or viewing, um, if you find that storytelling fits into data visualization and certainly the telling of feminism in your mind. Totally. Yeah. And I think on a couple of different levels, um, stories in the sense of um, one of the things that we try to say repeatedly throughout the book is that data are not just numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That data are also can be many things. I mean, data could be images, they could be stories, they could be, um, you know, responses to a question or something like that. They could be tweets from social media, um, but just it's just any kind of information that you have collected systematically. Um, but one of the cases we really try to make is that, um, again, like lived experience, like the experience of being a particular person in a particular body in a particular geographic location, that that experience is a form of empirical data, mm. um, that's something that like feminism brings us back to over and over again. Um, And in particular as a a reaction to the fact that so many times women's uh, stories and bodies have been overlooked, erased uh, from archives, from history, um, you know, invisible labor in the household and all of these things. Um, And so thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, we can, the only way we can really, recover those voices is by listening to those lived experiences not by like a high level macro level uh survey or something like that um and so sort of again just rebalancing so like just like we we don't we're not saying in that chapter that's about reason and emotion we're not saying like reason has no place Mm because reason of course has a place but like rebalancing so that reason is not always on top and overshadowing emotion, right? Um, and same goes for like quantitative data versus qualitative data. I mean, actually one of the things we say in the book is like what feminism pushes back on are these false binaries. So whenever you have a false binary, like the gender binary, like there are more than two genders, just mm-hmm. empirically speaking, there are. You know? <laughs> um, and so, uh, but anytime you have this uh, gender binary, right, it's actually what it's usually high, hiding is a hierarchy. So mm-hmm. if you're saying there's only men and women, you know, what that is, that's actually a hierarchy and the men are on top. Um, in the case of reason and emotion, the hierarchy is reason is on top. In the case of quantitative versus qualitative information, the quantitative information is the thing that um, tends to be the more uh, valued and so on. And so 
again, we kind of argue for this like rebalancing of, um, first of all, what do we even consider as data? And so like lived experience counts. <laughs> like that's like in a way, like a intimate grounded, um, highly valorized form of empirical data. Um, but also that um, stories uh, count as well um, mm-hmm. and are a really important sort of uh, piece of the puzzle um, if we want to make responsible knowledge. Mm, my goodness. I find it fascinating the way you're sort of pushing into these new spaces I and mean, lived experience, not to get too philosophical, but it makes me think that you know, we're nothing but the memories we have of each other, that we're pushing past mm-hmm. these boundaries. And I am curious, you know, the idea of collaboration came up as a major theme in data feminism in your book. Um, yeah. Do you see that as a kind of evolutionary movement in another way of pushing boundaries from the old American ideal of independence um, and sort of maybe a move from a classic Emerson concept of self-reliance to one in which freedom is found by recognizing and acting on our interdependence? Oh my gosh. I would just hope so. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be like a, 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 a thing that I would definitely hope for. Um, and actually you're making me think I have listened to some of, there's some lectures by Judith Butler, the feminist theorist, mm. uh, where she's been talking about exactly this concept of interdependence. Um, and, you know, she looked at a very like, kind of Western European canon of philosophy, but basically she says her critique of all this philosophy, she's like, these folks, you know, when they, they imagine man or the human or whatever, <laughs> um, it's always this, or the individual especially, it's a person who's born, it, like it created fully formed as an adult. Um, and they, there's no theory, you know, she talks about how there's no theory of how did that person grow up? Like who took care of that person? Mm. Um, and from the very most basic part and earliest part of our lives, we are interdependent and we, somebody cares for us and we care back and we need them desperately. Like we need them to live, you know? Um, and so I love the, the lectures are wonderful. Um, but I, I love this idea. Um, and I think it is connected to this idea of co-liberation where, um, I mean, that, that idea is basically that, uh, none of us are free unless all of us are free. Meaning, uh, systems of structural oppression like sexism or like white supremacy and racism, they harm all of us. Like white supremacy harms white people um, as well. And so for us to fully be free, we have to work in alliance or as accomplices uh, for racial justice. Um, and so, yeah, it's like you see your your liberation and your freedom is tied to that of um folks across various kinds of intersectional lines of difference. Um, so, I mean, that is one thing I would desperately hope for is that we would all uh, start to understand that more. And I mean, I think to some extent, maybe we are, because I think we are seeing right now the, you know, like COVID has laid bare the inequalities that are just under the surface of our current sort of very neoliberal capital system and it's just it's not a system that's working for most of us and so thinking about like how do we how do we reframe and reorient around a world that is about collaboration that is about interdependence that is about solidarity um i i would hope that there is that uh 
that 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 is a, a future that we can think through together. But it's man, it's like it's kind of big. So, <laughs> <laughs> got it. Well, I have one more question left because I know we're running um, sort of towards the top of the hour. Um, and what I love about what you're just saying is that that seems very in step with Eastern philosophies, even that we're all connected mm. as allies, as groups, and and I would say. Uh, sort of the movements around mindfulness that are happening in terms of mm. how aware we all are, uh, not just in ourselves, of our senses, but also of others around us. And so my last question for you, <laughs> long with yeah, that, yeah. Um, is you put data feminism online in order to get real-time feedback from readers. What was that yeah. open peer review process like for you? If you had to do it again, is there anything that you'd do differently? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was, again, one of those things we weren't quite sure what would happen. And we were a little bit afraid. We were, we were a bit afraid of trolls, but luckily the trolls did not come. So that's great. <laughs> great. Feel glad for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, it was a very... Um, basically, the way that it worked was, you know, we wrote a first draft of the book. Typically, with the academic press, they send it out for peer review. And peer review would be, like two to five people anonymously who are like experts in the field, look at it and, you know, give you some uh, feedback. Um, and we did do that. So we got those kind of reviews. Mm. Um, but then the press was piloting this uh, platform, PubPub, and they gave us the option of putting the book there. And, and we said, okay, let's do this. I mean, you know, cause one of our principles is embrace pluralism. Um, and that's also kind of a concept out of Haraway comes from this idea of situated knowledge. So this idea that by pooling more perspectives, we actually strengthen the knowledge at the table, right? Cause you can kind of like pool things and build consensus towards a kind of um, more holistic conception of whatever it is that you're trying to study. So we said, okay, let's try it. Um, and by and large, it was great. I mean, it, it was really interesting to me. It was like some folks would read it and they would literally just do copy edits. And then those were fine. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, like, like this one person came in and like copy edited our whole book basically. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's like the different folks came in with different kind of reading. So like, uh, colleagues came in and kind of looked at it from the lens of like um, trans and non-binary inclusiveness, which uh, we were super grateful for because there were definitely times where I think we were not being inclusive with our, with our language, um, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and then other folks came in and offered other references, um, you know, many of which we incorporated into the book. Uh, there were a couple of times where reviewers sort of argued with each other. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, and then actually the most interesting thing is not the stuff that's represented online, but then the fact that a number of like colleagues and peers that we like when we put out the call, we reached out to, I don't know, maybe like 20 people individually. We're like, Hey, we'd really like your opinion specifically. And a good amount of those responded, but a lot of them actually responded to us in email or I even had one colleague who he printed out the whole open source version and he hand annotated it and gave me the paper, um, which I just was like so charmed by because I was like, wow, you like took the time to like hand annotate basically every single chapter of our book. It was like just a very generous um, 
that's very generous. Uh, so yeah, so for everything you see online, there's like probably about equal in terms of things we received offline uh, mm. through email or, or other channels. Um, and then overall, I would just say it like, like really strengthened the book. It helped us catch our own blind spots. Uh, it, um, it provided some really good food for conversation for us as we were revising the book and it led to major revisions. Like we actually like restructured a number of the chapters and um, kind of really reframed things after it as well. Got it. Wow. Catherine, this is fantastic. Um, do you mind if I ask you one more question? <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so- in Data Feminism, you write how, I mean, after the 2014 Make the Breast Pump Not Suck Hackathon, you want to take, to take a more intersectional approach in the 2018 mm-hmm. event, and yeah. um, meaning like that you included participatory research projects and policy summit mm-hmm. and, and community innovation elements, things that we, we know and love. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what was the experience? Like, what were the outcomes? And maybe after that, what would you like to happen at the next hackathon? Yeah. Yeah. So for that event, I think the outcomes were like just an amazing set of projects that never would have come out of a hackathon at MIT if we hadn't done it like that and prioritized racial and socioeconomic equity. And like what, so what I mean by that is the first, the first hackathon was amazing. The one in 2014, um, and but primarily attended by um, mainly I would say like higher income, highly educated, mainly white folks, um, but lots of women, lots of babies, like really great mm-hmm. uh, diversity from that perspective for a hackathon. Um, but produced a lot of uh, ideas for what works for a. a woman who works outside of the home at a professional sort of knowledge working job. Um, So it doesn't mean those things shouldn't exist because like they should, like they're like smart pumps and warm pumps and um, uh, hands-free pumps, uh, things like this, um, which were great. But for the second hackathon, we were really trying to center women of color, really thinking very carefully about a lot of the, um, disparities in maternal mortality and uh, infant health outcomes and things like that. Uh, we really tried to do things differently um, and let groups that came from communities of color who served primarily uh, low-income families and parents, let them lead. Um, and we got just way different projects. So for example, um, this amazing group, uh, the Indigenous Women Rising group, um, they did a project where their hack was sort of more low tech and involved um, modifying their traditional native ceremonial regalia um, and because it's not breastfeeding friendly. Um, and so it involved working with a native seamstress, modifying the regalia, um, and then uh, starting to use an economic model to disseminate that throughout the community. So it's not only like a uh, breastfeeding friendly clothing, but then there's also kind of a business model behind it to earn income for these uh, seamstresses and support uh, traditional culture as well. Um, and so that's just something that like never would have come out of a bunch of like Boston and MIT people sitting around a computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, um, but totally appropriate and still going strong today, actually. Um, and then likewise, there's a group from Detroit, Harambe Care, um, and they 
like if you've ever had, heard of a birth plan where you um, create a birth plan to like kind of anticipate what your birth needs would be mm-hmm. and say whether you want to have uh, any kind of uh, medical like, um, you know, pharmaceuticals or none or whatever, um, they came up with this idea of a lactation plan. So, um, and they serve a lot of black moms. And so it's a, bla- a, a lactation sort of like planning toolkit specifically for black moms to help them understand what are their lactation choices, um, how do they breastfeed, when will they need breastfeeding support. Um, and they actually designed it to train like the whole family. So they do a lot of work prior to the birth with the whole family. So including like mm. grandmas and partners um, and folks like that who often have a big influence on uh, what are the choices that the mom or birthing parent makes in terms of continuing or not with breastfeeding. Um, so yeah, I think like things like that were, uh, and we still had high tech things. Like we still had like a, a um, this amazing woman that, who did a VR nursery where you would have a, um, you, if you're in like a gross bathroom and you're pumping, <laughs> then you could put on your VR headset and then it would have a custom picture of your own house and your own nursery and your baby is there and there's like sounds of your baby and stuff like that all as a way of sort of um, facilitating letdown. So I kind of like that idea. Or actually, I, I like the idea of like, I can just imagine me like in the dirty bathroom trying to pump with a VR headset on. Like, <laughs> that image to me is very funny. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I think like that's the thing that, that to me is like the major difference is in like what what kinds of innovations happen and how, you know, like the first hackathons innovations were culturally appropriate to the the people who were there and then the second hackathons were culturally appropriate to the people who were there but they're like again just wildly different contexts so like we have to make sure as we are trying to foster innovation that we're not um excluding people by just not thinking about our own positionality in the world if that makes sense like excluding people just because like we will end up designing for ourselves Mm -hmm. um, unless we're really intentional about not designing for ourselves (laughs) no thank you Catherine this whole conversation has totally expanded my mind and I think really just given me a new lens in which to to think about not only data, not only feminism, but the sort of beautiful intersection of what that can embody. So really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's such a pleasure to to be back after two years. So yeah. <laughs> we can wait for another two years, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll see you in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> EPAM Continuum integrates business, design, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thank you to Catherine and Jen for their thought-provoking conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. And numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Macy Donaway. Thank you for listening today.